You're listening to Life Repurposed, where you'll find practical biblical wisdom for everyday living, creative inspiration, and helpful resources. Grow your faith, improve your relationships, discover your purpose, and reach your goals with topics to encourage you to find hope amid the trashy stuff of life. Thanks for joining me today. I'm your host, Michelle Rayburn. Hello there. This week I have a guest and I'm going to be getting into that interview shortly. But before we do, I want to tell you a little bit about Robin Seaton. She has a huge heart for the hurting and a longing for others to know that they don't need to do life alone. She's able to share her hope because she's experienced God's power in her own pain and her loneliness. And she learned through this that God is more amazing than we can imagine. Her walk with God spans over 50 years, and so her experiences and knowledge of God through His Word allow her to speak with confidence. She's also launched a new ministry this year called Soul Cries, and this encompasses a website, resources, a blog, and a podcast for millennials and Gen Z who have lost all hope and are willing to have a look at God. It's a place to safely discuss their doubts and questions, as well as to hear stories of those whose lives have been changed and who have been given hope through a relationship with Jesus Christ. We talk about that in this episode, and it was recorded before Soul Cries launched. So if we're talking about it coming, that's because we recorded this in the spring. Robin is one of the authors in the Life Repurposed book, so we also talk about her chapter there. So here's my interview with Robin Seaton. Robin, thank you so much for joining me today to sit down and chat a little bit about your chapter in Life Repurposed, but also more about your life. Well, thank you for inviting me today. I'm really excited. I am too. So I want to know what creative hobby do you pursue when you have downtime? And I know you probably don't have a lot of downtime, but. I love to garden and um, I like to read. I love music. And I just, I love being in nature. Mm, yeah. I used to garden a lot when my kids were at home, but now that I'm an empty nester, I I tend to just buy through a CSA. I don't know if you're familiar with the Community Supported Agriculture, it stands for. And so it's when somebody who has a vegetable farm makes boxes of excess and you pay a membership and then you just go pick up the box every week. So that's what I've been doing. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Yeah, it's nice. There's one really close to me. But I do love that feeling of getting my hands in the dirt and planting something. So I have a few flower beds that I've kept. That's probably more what I do are the flower beds. And I've got perennials. So it's just a little bit of weeding in the spring and and basically watching it grow, watching the birds and stuff. I love that. Yeah, the birds love the butterflies. I love Mm -hmm. to take my laptop outside and work in the summer and watch all the hummingbirds come to the flowers. Yes. Yeah, we actually bought a little fan for our front porch. So if it gets too hot, I can just turn the fan on and enjoy the day. Nice. Yeah. So we have writing in common. We're both writers and Mm -hmm. um, you are one of the authors in the Life Repurposed book, but I know you've written in other places. So how long have you been writing? Mm. I've done journaling for probably a good part of my life on and off, but um, I started blogging about 2014 and I knew nothing. So it was a whole new world with all new language and a huge learning curve. So it's just over time I've been learning and growing in my craft. I think I started blogging first too. It was something that I could do with kids at home and 
it was more like my way of reaching out to the world a little bit. Yes. I've loved it. I've been grateful for it. Yeah. And then blogs can eventually become book ideas and stuff like that. So nothing's wasted. Um, I look back, though, sometimes I think, wow, I wonder who read this. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I agree. It was so different then. I wrote so differently then. Well, the world was different without so much social media, too. So people were actually going to blogs and reading them or subscribing. Yeah. So it was different then. Yes. So now we're turning to podcasting. And we will talk about that at the end of the show, how you have morphed into podcasting just like I have. So that's really cool. Because to me, a podcast is a portable blog. It's like somebody can just take it with and you yes. can do something else instead of reading. Yes, it's fun. And it, and it uses different parts of my brain and yeah, makes me um, it's just a very different way to to express the same things. Yeah, but you get to actually listen to someone's voice. So I love mm -hmm. listening to podcasts because I feel like some of the people who I listen to regularly have become my friends, even though they don't know who I am. Mm, that's neat. That's you know, it's neat. like they go for a walk with me every week. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. They don't know it. That's cool. So in the in your chapter in the Life Repurpose book, you talk about some of your story and. There, we won't get into all of it there because you have so many other avenues of your story as well. But one of the topics that you cover was adopting your son and really feeling lonely in the middle of that. So can you tell mm -hmm. us just a little bit more about how, why his adoption changed your life in such a drastic way? Sure. My husband and I couldn't have children and we had tried for several years and then we tried adopting and lost several adoptions prior to his. Mm. and. Um, came to the place where we just realized adoption at that point, abortion was becoming more and more prevalent and adoptions of infants were becoming less and less able to be able to do so. And we'd had so much difficulty trying to adopt um, that we ended up deciding, well, maybe we should go special needs. And I had a medical background. And so I thought at first uh, we were offered a the possibility of adopting a little girl with cerebral palsy. And we had just bought our house. It was a split foyer about a year before. And so we were just debating that would be so much change. She was in a wheelchair, probably would be her whole life. Mm -hmm. The thought of adopting her was not scary, but just the whole thought of what we'd have to do to our brand new home to make it possible. And a friend of mine whose husband was a contractor, we were having coffee one day and she said she knew about the possibilities and she said doesn't that scare you the possibility of adopting a special needs child and I said well no I'd actually done child care for a severely special needs child for years and I said no that's that's not so scary because of my background but you know what really scares me autism and I don't even know why I said it um We'd watched the movie Rain Man. That was it. And autism back then was not, this would have been in the 90s. Autism just wasn't well known. And so the very next day, we got a call from the adoption agency. Robin, we have this beautiful five-year-old little boy with autism. Hmm. And I wanted to laugh. I thought, of all the things <laughs> with the conversation just the day before. So yeah. I, 
I said, well, it was the week before Christmas of all things. And we were heading to my husband's family home. And if anyone would have had trouble with the adoption, it would have been his family. So we had not been with his family for a holiday since we were married, which had been like 15 years before. So just all the timing of everything. And we sat around the table with his family and thought, well, we'll broach it and they'll say no way. And that'll be the end of it. Every single one of them looked at us and said, well, why wouldn't we accept him? Hmm. And we just looked at each other like, are we in the right family? We just didn't expect such an answer. And again, so we went back to the adoption agency and said, well, we've prayed and prayed and prayed. And we feel like we just need to proceed and see what God does. So, and then I said to the director, why did you pick us? We didn't even have our home study. And she said, well, I prayed about it. And God said you were to be his parents. I have two families ready who could take him tomorrow. Their home studies are done, ready to go. But God picked you. Wow. And so with great fear and trepidation, we decided to proceed. And throughout the entire home study, the social worker kept saying she'd ask a question and then she'd say, well, wait a minute. You've already been approved. That question doesn't apply. <laughs> and um, so finally, um, we were able to meet him. And he lived in the same community as we did. His school, his special needs school, was the school that if he had been born to us, he would have gone to. Mm. And um, we just started meeting him in different places and locations and for him it was frightening he began mm -hmm. to look at us like why are you trailing me you <laughs> weird people but um the fine the following march he came into our home and we had been to a conference a couple months before to try to prepare the, the agency we were also the agency's very first older child placement so they were clueless as well how everything was supposed to go other than some of the preliminary things you normally do we watched a video on attachment issues and we met with a couple other families and they introduced us to a family with a child with autism so they prepared as best they could but nobody really knew um, what was going to happen and we had attended this seminar and i shared in the book my friend and I walked into the women's restroom partway through one of the breaks and all the families there were families with children with autism. And every one of the women stood there with their eyes to the ground. Nobody talked and it was eerie. Yeah. That when you wrote about that, that really resonated with me too. In fact, I think I marked it because it was something where, um, I wanted to look here and see what it was that I marked when you wrote that. Um, it was something about living in two worlds, I think. Mm -hmm. where and, and that just really resonated with me, with those women who wouldn't look people in the eye. It was like they had autism themselves. Mm. Their lives had been so altered. And I walked out of the bathroom and I said to my friend, did you see that? She said, yeah. And later on, we talked about it. And I said, I don't know what to think about that. And she said, she kind of made a comment about, well, maybe that might be you or something like that. And 
because the adoption was already in way and we felt like we were supposed to do it, I think there was a part of me that just was in denial. I didn't want to think that could be me. We'll do better. Mm-hmm. You know, there's always this scenario. We're going to be better. We're going to know. It's it's just, you know, everything's going to be all right. And he came into our home and for the first couple of months, everything went fairly well. He was difficult from the beginning. Um, he was five and he didn't use a fork. He wasn't toilet trained. Mm-hmm. But then within two or three months, just kind of all hell broke loose. Mm-hmm. And we began to realize that the people in our world had no clue autism again wasn't, it was like one in 100 children at that point. And our, our circle of family and friends, they just didn't know what to do. His behaviors were different. The children would make fun of him. And, but because the parents thought it was really odd as well, and they didn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. It just was, it became, easier not to be invited and it became easier to you know to say I'm really sorry um Mm -hmm. and I we tried as best we could to include all of us in activities but it just became harder and harder as time went on and I'm grateful for the people who tried to include us but even then nobody knew how like Mm-hmm. I had one friend who who sent her son for a play date, but when there's no reciprocal play, what do you do? And the neighborhood kids, he'd walk out. He was savvy enough to, I mean, he knew, he knew what was going on in his world mm-hmm. and he'd run out to play with the local kids and then just stand there because his social skills, he didn't know what to do. He had no verbal ability to communicate with them. And so the kids were like, okay, what's next? And I was totally illiterate as to how to fix it. And so, you know, kids are kids and they wouldn't make fun of him directly to his face. But then I'd hear little things later and I'd try to say something to a parent and they'd get defensive. And so it just ended up social things ended up just falling apart. And, and I am a social being. I love people. I bond with people. And all that was going down the tubes. And so, and then I became angry. Like, why can't you just help me? If you loved me, you would help me. If you loved me, you would try to overcome this with me. But that's not how the world usually works. And um, so, and there were people who did try, you know, so it wasn't like it was total exclusion, but nobody knew what to do. Yeah. And we didn't know what to do. And so, and then as his, as he grew, he was dealing with all of the difficulties of being adopted at five with all the social issues that come with autism anyway. Mm -hmm. And so when I would reach out to people and say, we're dealing with something like he would just lash out at me. We'd be playing and he'd lash out because of the attachment issues. And I'd say, well, what do I do? And they'd say, well, he has autism, honey. Just that's what autism is. And I'm thinking, no, there's two different things going on here. So there was a whole societal piece that people didn't understand about autism yeah. as well. And then at school, I'd go to school and say, what do I do? And they'd say, 
he has autism, honey. Just get used to it. And they'd laugh at his behaviors. And, mm. and, and so there was just a whole lot of unknown. And I'd go to the agency and say, what do I do? And they'd say, I don't know. We've never done anything like this before. So it just became a very, very lonely, lonely, lonely yeah. place. And my family tried but they didn't mm-hmm. understand either. And then when I would get angry because I didn't know what to do, um, anger was not a good way to respond, but that's how I responded. People would say, uh, you shouldn't be getting angry. That's not a good idea. You're not helping the situation. Mm-hmm. And I, and, and so it was just kind of like this implosion happening inside of me as well. I didn't know how to deal with his behaviors I didn't know what to do. God was so gracious in that time. So, so gracious. But I also began realizing that if I responded, my son knew how to press buttons. And so he was very, he was very intuitive. And so he learned what buttons to press really quickly to get things out of hand. Not his fault. I'm the adult. Mm-hmm. But he knew, <laughs> he learned very quickly how to press all my buttons. And so I had advice. You're just going to have to learn how to not show your emotions. And so that hit hit into all of it as well. And so it just became eventually me and God and my husband. And there were those who could counsel me on the outside, but it became very difficult as a family unit and so social fell apart my emotions were not doing well I was having to hide a lot of stuff inside and things don't hide very well for very long so um but in the middle of it like I said God was so gracious to give me what I needed to press on and to try to be the best mom I knew how to be because I really wanted to be a good mom. I'm really grateful. I'm grateful for how God so, so moved in times when I desperately needed his help. Mm -hmm. And my husband was a rock. And, um, And the people that came alongside to give us respite, which a lot of special needs families don't have, um... I will be eternally grateful for them. I have a sister-in-law who has never married and God gifted her to be his auntie. Hmm. And so she was probably one person that was a stalwart for him and her. And my husband's father ended up just adoring him. So, um, you know, there, there were some really bright spots too. As as you're telling your story, I'm hearing a loneliness that comes from having to step into a new role, from not having people understand anything about parenting your son, and then having to become a different person because you're hiding who you really are. 
So what I want to know is where did you find, you said God God showed up. Can you think of some examples for how he did show up? For the person who's listening who feels that intense loneliness or who's in a situation right now where other people just don't understand, where can they look for hope? Sure. I would love to because that's probably the biggest the biggest part of the story. I, I knew that I couldn't do this without God. God made that very clear initially. We had that first two months that were wonderful. And then I started patting myself on the back quite a bit and saying, oh, you just got this. We got it. And all of a sudden the bottom dropped out and I felt like the Lord said, how far do you got it, girl? You know, you, you can you do this very well on your own? And I learned quickly, no, I can't. I can't at all. And so my reliance on the Lord was huge. And I would, my son was nonverbal, basically. He had a few words. Very um, body language, his body language is amazing. But he still doesn't have a lot of language even today. He has some, but um, so there were times, especially early in our relationship, when he would just suddenly burst into tears. And I was ignorant. You know, I never thought, well, this kid's been through so much. He's in a new house and a new family and a new environment and a new neighborhood. I would just say, Lord, I don't know what's wrong. And I'd start to get, you know, frustrated internally. I don't know what to do. And I'd say, God, what's going on here? Would you just help me know what to do? And a thought would come into my head. I'll give an example. We were eating dinner one night and he burst into tears. And I said, okay, God, just quietly to myself, God, what do I do? I don't know what's going on. And the thought came to me, your plate looks different than his. And I said, John, our plates look the same. Look, we have burritos, you have burritos. I just didn't put it together because I didn't think with all your sensory stuff that you'd want it together. So look, you got beans, we got beans. You got tortilla, we got tortilla. You got carrots, we got carrots. He stopped crying, got a smile on his face, finished his dinner. And there was another situation where he was, we were in the bathroom trying to toilet train at five and a half, six years old. And he kept saying the word words, words, words. I'd say, what do you need? Words, words. And the more I asked him, because I didn't understand what he was saying, the more frustrated he got. And so finally I said, let's stop and pray. So he stopped and I said, Lord, would you please help John either get the word or would you just help me understand what he wants? Got all done. And for the first time, he said words and pointed to the diaper drawer. Diapers. I said, are you wanting a diaper? And he got a big grin on his face. Yes. <laughs> and it was done. And it was instantly after we prayed. And so many times throughout my journey with him, even still today, if he's having trouble with language or whatever, which he does often, there have been times when I just stop. Would you like to pray? Let's mm. just stop and pray. God, would you please either give him the words 
or give me the wisdom to know what. And there have been times when it's been a combination of the both. There have been times when it's just, John, let's pray. And he'll have, he'll suddenly say something and I'll have a thought and we'll put the two together and his whole demeanor changes. Mm. It's been amazing. And only God can do that. Yeah. Only God can do that. And when he was about 15, it was after his father's death. His father died in 2008, my husband of cancer. And I could no longer care for him because at that point we were too volatile together. Even though I loved him dearly and he loved me at whatever level he could. Um, He certainly needed me and he knew he needed me, but he was going through teenage stuff and all Mm -hmm. the emotions and hormones and plus just the whole everything that had gone on. I knew I couldn't care for him. And Mm -hmm. so we had to put him, I had to put him in voluntary placement, remained close um, because I wanted to be his mom. I mean, I never wanted anything but that. So um, we had four years of him just totally angry at God, angry at me, angry at the world, angry at everything, understandably. But when I remarried, my second husband and I began praying, and I had been praying already, would you just change his heart? Would you do what needs to be done to bring healing and hope to him? And so often when I would be with him, I would just sense the Holy Spirit say, just tell him how much I love him. Just tell him how much I love him. And over time, I began to see changes and softening and um, a realization, even still in his anger, that she's my mom and she's always going to be my mom and she's not going anywhere, no matter how ugly I get. And also, During that time, I knew I needed to make apologies for things. And so just this healing began taking place where I wasn't dealing with him 24 hours a day. He wasn't dealing with me 24 hours a day. And so it was time for both of us to heal and start afresh. And so God allowed that time for us and, um, It was nothing I ever wanted, but it had to be. And God miraculously provided it because that's not something that typically happens. And I was told later it was miraculous that this process happened for you because it doesn't normally happen. Um, And God provided the exact people along the way to helped the process, my social worker, who got the process rolling and um, intervened and did all the processing of everything that needed to be done to have him in a different place. She said to me when the process was over, did you know I didn't want your case? (laughs) I said, no, I didn't, because she was an angel. I called her my angel. And she said, yeah, she said, but my brother died five years ago and I'm still processing that. And that's why I didn't want your case because she knew my husband was dying. Mm. And she said, but 
social workers are busy people and they can't often give people the time that they may need. They just don't have it. And I didn't want you to become a number instead of a name. And so I took your case anyway. She went to the funeral. She was amazing. And I I can't give anyone but God credit for that. I just can't. Um, and then years later, because of the social worker-client relationship, we couldn't have anything like, you know, a friendship. Years later, I was in a fairly new church after my second husband and I got married and I was at the welcome center and then she walks one day and she and her husband ended up attending there as, but because that was years later, I saw her and she walked, she walked in. I said, do you recognize me? And she said, yes. And we embraced and it, and it ended up being just this beautiful reunion. And I think only God out of all the churches in our locality, she would end up at ours as a brand new believer. And I just, story after story after story of God's intervention, I could go on for hours of all the ways that when I would cry out to God for help and knowing that he was my heavenly father, knowing that I could not do it without him and I was willing to do whatever he said to do mm-hmm. to get it done, to be obedient, he always intervened, not always as mm-hmm. I hoped, but he intervened as I needed. And I would have never imagined the intervention would have been my husband dying and having to place him outside of our mm-hmm. home. We promised to be his parents forever. And that was the hardest decision I've ever made. But God knew it was exactly what we all needed. And today, I am so proud of him. And he, especially after COVID, he is so grateful to have company and to wanting affection and wanting me there and wanting to be part of his world. And it's like... I serve an amazing God. We serve an amazing Mm. God. I love your story. And you tell in the book even more things that God worked out in that whole process. And so we'll let people read that in Life Repurposed as well, because you talk about visiting him on weekends and how God even provided a place for you to stay when you would go to visit. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so I love all those little details. For the person who's listening, um, you've talked about a really close relationship with God. And I want to know, what do you do on a daily basis to tend to that relationship with God and nurture that because it sounds like you have intimate conversations with God throughout the day. I do. Um, my, my relationship has developed over years from God. I just want to please you because I grew up in church. I grew up, I accepted Jesus at four. I don't even remember doing it. My mom tells the story of walking out of Sunday school, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me at four. But I grew up thinking I had to please him, that that was what the goal was. That was the goal, was to please him. He loved me, and so my job was to please him. Grace doesn't come into that very easily because it's right. a works. It's like I, I, my whole goal is, and if I displeased him in my mind, I assumed that was how he thought of it, too. 
And finally, when I read a book about the grace of God, it was a book called The Grace Awakening by Chuck Swindoll, probably back in the 70s. For the first time, I realized what this whole thing about grace meant. It wasn't just grace to be saved. It was grace for life. And it brought a freedom into my world that I'd never known. And then I began to realize it's not about pleasing him, although that's, and it's, it, obedience is important to God, but his love and grace fill in so many gaps. And yeah. as my relationship has grown, it's gone from wanting to please him to then it went to, okay. And I also learned during that, this, these transitions that I read the Bible with those things in mind as well. I read the Bible with, okay, what does God say about how I'm supposed to please him? What am I supposed to do? And so that filtered my Bible reading. But when I, even many years past my learning about grace, I still filtered my Bible reading for a lot of years with, I I just want to please you. I understand your grace better, but I just want to please you. And then in just the last few years, it's come to, I please you in Jesus because I'm walking with you. I'm your daughter, but I want to know you. Now I want to know you. And so now my Bible reading, and I try to read daily, and I realize it doesn't always happen daily, but that's like a a really, it's, again, that's part of the transition. My Bible reading was checking off a check sheet of obedience, although I wanted to, it wasn't a, a felt force to, I have to, because I want that relationship with you. I need that relationship with you. I want that relationship with you. And if I go too long without it, I begin to feel lonely. Something's mm. missing. It's just huge missing to me. And so, but my reading now is more, I want to know you. So what does it say about you and how you want to relate to me and how you want to relate to our world. And God's word is full of how I want to relate to people. And it's full of how I want to relate to the world. I don't, God didn't plan our world to be this way. So he allowed it, but he didn't, it wasn't his original plan. So it's, he's made provision to relate to us. And so the beauty for me is just, wow, you really, really do want to do this. This is really your heart. And that just draws me to him even more. And so um, I try to have a daily Bible reading and just time to communicate not only what I want him to know and just get off my chest or talk to him about, but also I try to listen. Because he will speak to us. He says he will, and he does. It's not audible. It's usually thoughts and feelings. And and so um, I try to listen. And then just in the last probably year, I have, with COVID and all that's going on in our world, there's so much tension. And I felt it daily, even though I wasn't a part of it daily. I felt it. And I began to realize worship is so critical. 
And so I've added more of a worship piece into my life that just when I worship, it's just basically, I, it's like sitting in front of him or standing in front of him and, and just adoring him. And it, it's been amazing. His word says that we enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. And scripture talks about how, about his peace. And I find when I add this worship piece, entering into time with him that way where I'm just adoring him. And it's pleasant. It's not forced. The more I know God, the more pleasant it is for me. And so it brings me such an internal peace that I can't describe I love that. Practical examples of how when we're going through lonely times, we can draw near to God and build that relationship in a way that we know he's there even when it feels like nobody else is. Yeah. One of the things that you've done is you've taken your experience and turned it into a ministry that's just launching brand new. You have other avenues of ministry, but I really want you to tell us about your latest one, which is called Soul Cries, and why you started that, where we can find that on the internet. Thank you. Soul Cries was birthed out of all the struggles with with our sons. Um, we have my husband. I have a stepson who also, because of his losses, he lost a mom. I'm actually third mom to three sons. Mm. So all of our kids have had tremendous, tremendous loss. And, and then my husband and I have had losses. You know, we both lost spouses after 25 years of marriage to our first spouse. So in the midst of all the loss and the brokenness and seeing how it's affected our kids. And um, my son works at having a relationship with God and his relationship with God is, is stronger than it used to be, but he still struggles a lot. And my stepsons have no relationship whatsoever with God. They grew up in the church, but walked away. And as I see that more and more in our culture, and as I see the brokenness in our kids, my husband and I, our hearts just ache. And we know from experience that God is real, that he is available, that he is powerful, that he wants to interact with his creation. And more than interact, he wants relationship with his creation. And so soul cries came out of that, of just offering a way for whoever comes along to see that there's a powerful God, that he loves them, that he's not absent as much as they may think he is, and that it's just to give people an opportunity to maybe see God from a different perspective than they've ever even thought of possible. And so that's where Soul Cries comes from. Um, You can find it at www.soulcries.org. And there's some really cool things we've built into it, recognizing that many of our audience will not be Christians. So there's uh, blog posts that talk about what does this relationship look like? What do you do with your brokenness? Does God even care about it? All the categories are basically questions I hear young people ask. 
And then there's a podcast associated called Soul Cries, our, our Robin L. Seaton on SoundCloud. At this point, I'm hoping to get it on other platforms. And that's going to be interviews of people who have been through what our young people go through and have found Jesus Christ to be more than powerful to work in their lives, to bring hope, to bring healing. And we're trying very hard as we do the interviews to make it sound like, I don't want it to look like, sound like a Hallmark movie where mm-hmm. you get the start and the finish in 20 minutes or half an hour, two hours, and then you're done. We're trying very hard when we interview, when I interview people to make it very aware that God working in their lives wasn't, sometimes God works instantaneously. Good resources. And I love that you've taken your own brokenness, your own struggle, and turned it into a way of helping someone else. Because ultimately, it shows them that everything you've come through was not wasted if it can help somebody else. So as we wrap up, what word of hope would you like to leave with our listeners today? Nothing is hopeless with God. And he loves you desperately. And just once you, he is a gentleman. He will not force himself upon you. But neither does he want to be taken for granted either. He's not a genie. He's not Santa Claus. Where you can just cry out and then go on your own merry way and expect him to answer. Sometimes he does. But often he waits until you are ready to say, okay, I really need you. I really want you. And I'll do what it takes to have a relationship with you. And he, he's all over that. He's real. He has feelings and emotions like we do. Very, I mean, he's God. He made us. He's amazing. He's just amazing. Thank you so much, Robin. I so appreciate you sharing your heart and just a little piece of your story in a way that can encourage and give somebody else hope. Thank you so much for the opportunity today, Michelle. This has been delightful. You'll find everything we talked about in this episode in the show notes at michellerayburn.com slash 118. You've been listening to Life Repurposed with Michelle Rayburn. Check out tips, resources, and inspiration at michellerayburn.com to get the show notes for this episode. Each week, I share links to everything mentioned in the episode, graphics you can share, and guest quotes. I also invite you to join the Life Repurposed Facebook community for weekly conversation with others on the journey of discovering the repurposed life. Before you go, which friend needs to hear this episode? share a link with a note to invite them to listen. And thank you for listening too.